Okay, well, let's pray. Let's start looking at the Word tonight. Father, we thank You that Your Word is true. I thank You tonight that, that You want to bring revelation to us. Lord, we thank You tonight that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we enter into the season of Thanksgiving, the season of Christmas, and we thank You that God became a man in the form of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. Father, we thank You that, that You brought Him to us to deliver us from our sins. I thank You tonight that we sit and stand as the righteousness of God in Christ. I thank You tonight that because Jesus became a curse for us, we have been made, the, have been made to have the blessing of Abraham. Lord, I thank You that our lives are beyond what could have ever happened, beyond You and Your help for us. Tonight we thank You. We offer You praise and worship. And I ask for a spirit of revelation that we get it tonight. We understand what You want to tell us. We ask for the anointing of the Spirit that You just, you just reach into this room and You speak to us this evening. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm reminded that it doesn't really matter what part you're in. If you're around the anointing, lots of things can happen. One Sunday morning a long time ago, this, this is just for free, not in my notes, Tammy and I were at church, we were in our church, and, and she was giving the announcements. And during the middle of the announcements, this lady jumped up and said, I'm healed, I'm healed. Just because there was a presence of the Lord in that place. And it, we, my sermon wasn't going to be about healing. I don't know what the sermon was about, but what I remember about the service more than anything else is the lady began to cry that I'm healed. And so the Lord is not limited by what we think. He's not limited by how big we think we are. You know, He's God, and He can do many things. All we need to do is hang out around the anointing. And when the anointing is present, be open to anything He will say, anything that He will do. And I tell you, we just need to change our minds about a lot of things. So, that being said, I'm going to change the gears. I'm going to strip your gear right now. I want you to, th- I want you to think about a couple of things before, before I really get into what I'm going to say tonight. I want you to think about this. What about that border crisis? Thousands of illegal people are crossing our border every day. I mean, every day. They're not required to get a shot. They're not tested once a week to, to see. In fact... They're put on planes and shipped across the country and they're let off and nobody knows where the heck they are today. Okay. Well, I mean, that's just happening. I mean, they're entitled to free health care. They have free government housing along with free food and smartphones at your expense. And this, this feeling goes so far, right? <laughs> Many who enter our country illegally are entitled to money, up to $450,000. Because they illegally brought their children across the border and were separated. Wait a minute. Don't people who break the law and go to jail get separated from their families? It sounds like everybody who's been in the prison ought to get some money. What about this? Hundreds of thousands of people could soon be out of work because of unconstitutional mandates about whether or not they've received a COVID-19 shot. Oh, this isn't good news so far. No, man, you're, this is going to be good. I'm, I'm, getting ready, I'm getting ready to catch you up on everything you need to know. 
And that's going to further cause a labor shortage. It's going to further uh, cause uh, the supply chain issues, the supply chain shortage we have. By the way, the president today said you're not smart enough to understand the supply chain. <laughs> well, wait, maybe back up. The man that the liberal media is calling the president said that. Uh, and, and, the, and it makes the shortage of goods even more frustrating and avoidable. Uh, and that supply chain, you know, in my life I would have never imagined as a citizen of the United States of America that there would be a shortage of anything. Yeah. And to go and find the shelves empty and know that the boats are full in the ports, I mean, that, that, you know, that's, that's, that's a terrible thing. How about, let's think about this one. Here's a better thought. How about inflation? I mean, it's, especially gasoline, I mean, it's spiraling out of control. It causes pain to the average U.S. citizen, and it's due to the policies of an out-of-touch administration that has more care for an advancement of a racial socialist agenda than the people of America. How about that? How about this? Hundreds of U.S. citizens, thousands of Afghani, Afghani interpreters and families are still stranded in Afghanistan. All because of an ill-advised surrender to a terrorist regime who will now give our military base to China and all of, all of our secret equipment that's there. How about this? There's this woke and canceled culture that's mandating critical race theory to be taught in our schools along with the normalcy of transgender sex to be shoved down the throats of our school children all across this nation along with the admittance of boys dressed like girls into girls' restrooms at school where one girl was raped and another was attacked in a classroom. And not just at school, but in, 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 in stores across the nation. So how does that make you feel? See, what are, what are our emotions telling us right now? Well, happy holidays. Now think about this. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. All that I just said should not move you into fear, should not move you into worry, because we as believers have the responsibility and the opportunity to cast our burden upon the Lord. You have never been called to carry His burden. Not one time. The word cast in the Hebrew means to throw out, to throw down, to throw away, to shed, to hurl, or to flame. I mean, that means take an aggressive action to cast your burden. It says get rid of it. The word burden means lot or portion, but more specifically here it means anxiety or worry or fear. When worry or fear begin to come to you about what's happening, you need to immediately take control of the thoughts of your mind because we've been talking about that for weeks and weeks and you need to throw it down and not put up with it. How do you get rid of the thought? You have to say words. And what I just said was, I am casting my burden upon you, Lord, because I know that you will sustain me and you will never suffer me to be moved. By the circumstances. Everybody in this room can do that exact thing. You might have to do it a hundred times a day. But the Bible tells us what to do with it. It says he will sustain us. It says, it says that means to keep or support or maintain. 
I want God to maintain me. I want Him to support me. We've got to throw it down. We've got to throw it away. It says we won't be moved. The word moved means to shake, to slip, to fall, or to waver. You don't have to waver. You don't have to fall. Cast your burden on the Lord. That goes with 1 Peter 5, 7. It says casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. All your care. I mean, the, the casting, it means to throw down. In the New Testament, that word means to throw down with violence. It's like scoring a touchdown and spiking the ball. That's what you're supposed to do with your care. The word care here means anxiety or worry. You are to spike it in the devil's face if you have to. Throw it down. It says, how much of your care? All of your care. It's like, okay, okay, God, I'm giving you this much. I can handle the rest of them. No, no, cast all of them. And what I'm saying is not easy to do because we've been trained our whole lives to worry. I mean, we, in this room, we've been old enough to, we have watched enough newscasts to sink the Titanic without the iceberg. <laughs> I mean, there's enough worry. There's enough, there's enough garbage that we've listened to and, and been basically instructed to worry about. Because, because we, we, don't, we don't understand how to cast it. We've got to cast it on Him. We've got to throw it on Him. The only other time this word, uh, when it was talking about casting all your care, it's, the only time, the time it's used is when they cast their garments on Jesus. On that, on that, on that donkey. And, then the, and the palm leaves that He walked down. He's the only one who has the shoulders big enough to take it. He can carry the load. He's concerned about us. When it says he cares for us, it means he's concerned. He's not worried about us. He's concerned about us, that Greek word says. He is not worried. So now what do we do? I'm going to tell you, sometimes, and I don't understand how oh, I do. I just know the Spirit works it this way. Sometimes I read a verse of Scripture just in my daily Bible reading or somehow run across it, and the Lord says, I want you to teach on that. Okay, now I'm not, I can't do it right now, but this scripture, this next scripture, I'm going to tell you, I believe the Lord's telling me to teach on this. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I believe, and I'm going to finish my series talking about thoughts after I talk about Christmas for three weeks. I've got a lot of series, and I've got probably have five or six more on thoughts, I think. <laughs> But I want to talk about how do you fight a fight of faith? How do you do that? For most of us, it's like it's a theory. I mean, how do I fight? How do we fight a spiritual fight? That's a good question. How do we do that and lay hold on eternal life? The answer is in the verse that I just read to you. It says, Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed, a good profession before many witnesses. This isn't the whole whole thing. I'm just giving you a preview when I get ready to start teaching it. But the answer is here. The first thing you need to know about fighting a good fight is that the fight is connected in what you say. What is the first thing you say when something bad happens? That's in your heart. That first thing. What is... I mean, they, they did a study of all the, the, the black boxes when airplanes crashed. Most of the time, the pilots, the last thing they say is a curse. Because that was in their heart. I want, when I, when I, when I go, I want to be able to say, 
Thank you, Jesus, because I'm going to see him in just a minute. I want that to be in my heart. I want my heart to be full of that. Okay, we need to understand our, what we say is a key in fighting a fight of faith. What's in your heart comes out of your mouth, and if your heart is full of faith, that's what will come out of your mouth. That's what Jesus said. He said, he said whatever's in your mouth, what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. A good man out of the good treasure in his heart produces good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure in his heart produces evil things. So this is, this is an important part of fighting a good fight of faith. The word, the word profession here is the same as the word confession here in, in, in the King James. Sometimes they translate it different ways. The Greek word is homologeo. It means to say the same thing as. Or it means to agree and say it out loud. What, who would we agree with? What would we say the same thing? Who's, whose words would we say the same things as? The Bible. What did God say? To fight a fight of faith, we must learn to say what God said in the circumstance in spite of what we can see, hear, taste, touch, see, or smell. We've got to, what did God say? Sometimes saying what God says seems like it is the furthest thing from the truth that's out there. But if God said it, it cannot be a lie. This is, this is, this is grown-up Christianese 101. You've got to say what God said. Instead of saying, oh, my aching back. Instead of saying, this is killing me. Instead of saying, this is driving me crazy. Why would you say that? Because the Bible, Jesus said, if you will confess, that word is homologeo, if you will say the same thing as me before men, I will say the same thing before the Father, and he will release the angels on your behalf. If I am confessing, if I am speaking words that are contrary to his words, the angels do not have a job. Isn't this good so far? All right, so we have to learn to say the same thing. Thing, as he said, we've got to learn to fight the spiritual fight by saying what God says. Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? If you're not agreeing with God, you're not walking together with God. You're not walking toward the victory. You're walking toward the defeat. Ooh, isn't this powerful, huh? We have to learn to fight a fight of faith. Instead of saying what I see, I say what I believe, which is what God has said to me. And so I agree with him. Our words have to agree with him. See, unfortunately, many, if not most Christians, are ignorant regarding what I'm telling you right now. It's going to get better than this. I hope I get to the Christmas part of this message. (laughs) Malachi 2.17 says this. The Lord is speaking through the prophet. And he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Do you know God gets tired of hearing you not agree with him? I think sometimes he's saying, Jesus, why are they stopping the help? He gets tired of that. The next chapter over, in in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. I want my words to be stout for him, not against him. That's how we fight this fight of faith. 
I mean, we fight the good fight of faith. Listen, I'm going to read that verse again. I'm going to add the next verse to it. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus. He says, I'm charging you, and God and Jesus are watching. Talking about Jesus, who before Pilate witnessed a good profession. So if we want to know how to fight a good fight of faith, how did Jesus fight a fight of faith? Wouldn't he be the example we'd want to fight to watch? I mean, I think that, you know, that would be the one we'd want to watch. Jesus gives us an understanding of how to fight in the Spirit. Listen to this verse. Revelation 1, verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. How did Jesus fight? He had a sharp, two-edged sword in his mouth. What's that referring to? That's referring to the words that he said. It's referring to the Word of God. Jesus fought a fight with his mouth. Now, I'm not talking about calling people names. I'm not talking about cursing the, the Democrats or whatever. I'm talking about learning to speak what God said. The next chapter of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 16. Jesus said, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's how Jesus fights. He fights with the Word of God in his mouth. He speaks the Word of God. I tell you, we've got to take it seriously. The fight of faith, the fight in the Spirit, begins with our confession. I mean, it begins with what we say. How about these verses? Romans eight, Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, the word of faith which we preach. The word is near to you. It's right under your nose. It's in your mouth. The word should be in your mouth. It should come from your heart to your mouth, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That word saved here does not mean born again. It includes born again, but the word is sozo. It means, it means to be well, to be whole. It means to be rescued or delivered. What we're facing, the salvation in that situation comes from our mouth. If we as believers in the place of prayer for this nation would open our mouths and declare what the word says about Christian people and God's favor on us, I'm telling you, it will change the circumstance. Not, not the administration, not the Congress, not the Senate can change God's will and God's plan for our lives if we will come into agreement with Him. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. That's telling me a lot of things here. We must fight a fight of faith. We must speak what we believe. Not, not what we believe about the circumstance because, because Fox News said it was this way. But what does the Bible say? Not because, not because Newsmax says it's that way, but because God said it's that way. What did God say? We must let that be. We must believe with the heart, and we are delivered by the agreement from our mouth. So we fight the foe. Jesus came to deliver us from all of it, and we must come into agreement with him. Just because we're entering the holiday season, 
Doesn't mean we don't have to fight. Doesn't mean it's that we can just sit down and do nothing, you know, and eat a bunch of turkey or whatever we're going to do. But we must, we must fight the fight of faith every day. Be willing to get up and, and, and come to Him and let's fight the fight of faith. Amen? Amen. Ooh, that was fun. So now, let me talk about Christmas for a few minutes. So we have, that's what we have, we have to do that. Uh, here, let's read this passage. This is a good passage. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 through 12. And she, talking about Mary, brought forth her brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's a lot in that verse that we're going to talk about hopefully before in the next three times. What are swaddling clothes? What's a manger? Why, why didn't they have the money to get a hotel room? And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. What were they doing out there? I mean, after all, isn't it December the 25th? <laughs> and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, Lying in a manger. All of that part about Jesus being in swaddling clothes, being in the manger, is very prophetic about the rest of his life. It's very important. I think Christians ought to understand that. We're not going to get to that tonight, but we're going to get there eventually. So you know this is the story of Christmas, the first Christmas. And so we're going to look at Christmas. And I, I may, I've been studying this for about, oh, I don't know, three or four years now. And uh, at Christmas time, and I've never, I've never taught it. What I'm going to teach you, I've never taught before. Uh, I've taught, I've had lots. I haven't been the pastor of a church. You get to preach great Christmas sermons at church at, when you're the pastor. I mean, I used to preach all December on Christmas every year. But this is that story, and so we're going to look at it. But like a lot of other things, religious tradition has blinded people from what really happened at Christmas time, that first Christmas. I want to see it the way it is. I want to, I want to find out what it's about. So we're going to look at a lot of things, and hopefully we can. Hopefully I have enough time to get to most what I need to do, to do tonight. Traditions are good or they're bad. They can be either way. And you can have a great tradition. You can have an evil tradition. Um, it's kind of like that story. And I know you probably heard the story where the husband and the newlyweds, they were getting ready. To, she was going to fix a roast. And so she cuts the end off the roast and uh, gets ready to put it in the oven. And the husband says, why, why are you doing that? And she said, well, because my mama always cuts the end off the roast. That's how we have the roast. And so he said, why, why does he do that? And he, she said, I don't know. Well, let's call her. So, he, so the, the son-in-law calls the mother-in-law. She says, your, your daughter's cooking the roast. She cuts the end off of it. And I'm just wondering why she cuts the end off the roast. And she said, she said well, I, I don't know, because my mama cut the end off the roast. And so I just cut the end off the roast. And she said, okay. He hangs back the phone. He said, let's call your grandmother. So he calls the grandmother. He says, you know, we're, your, your granddaughter's cooking a roast. And she's cutting the end off the roast. And, and she call, we called her mom. She said, she cuts it off because you cut it off. Well, why do you cut it off? She said, I don't know. That's what my mom always did, cut the end off the roast. So finally, they called great-grandma. They said, great-grandma, we're here and we're fixing a roast and we cut the end off the roast. because I do that because my mama did, she did because her mama did, and she did because you always did. Why did you cut the end off the roast? And she said, well, I don't know why you cut the end off the roast. I cut the end off the roast because my pan wasn't big enough to put it in. <laughs> 
And so sometimes we have traditions that are just that are just that are just useless traditions. We have traditions at Christmas time that that have nothing to do with the reality of what happened at Christmas. And so I don't want to step on your toes or ruin Christmas for you, but I'm just going to share some things about Christmas with you. At my house, our Christmas tradition has been for 40 years, I guess. Every Christmas Eve, I tell the Christmas story to all of my children and all of my grandchildren. And I tell it every year without fail. In fact, one year, my kids got worried. They said, well, Dad, you're going to die one of these days. I said, not anytime soon. And they said, but so they, you know, my boys are the videographers and they do all that stuff. They video recorded me telling the Christmas story at our house. You can watch it on, what is it, Vimeo or whatever that is. And you can go there and you can watch me tell the Christmas story. Or you can even play it at your house for Christmas Eve if you want to do that. But we have told this Christmas story over and over again. But we need to tell the truth about Christmas. What, what is it all about? So tonight I'm going to start off by taking a look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. What do you think about Mary? I mean, she's, she's an interesting lady. And, uh, you know, they, they know a lot. We know a lot about Mary. We know a lot about her from the scriptures. Uh, I mean, God could have chosen a lot of people, but why did, why did God choose Joseph and Mary? We're talking about Mary first, but why did he choose this poor, uneducated couple from Nazareth? Maybe that's the problem we have. We think they're a poor, uneducated couple. Let's talk about her. I mean, we know that we know a lot about her. We know that Jesus wasn't her only child. We know that, that he had four brothers and at least two sisters. We know that he had a cousin named John. We know that her cousins, Mary's cousins, were, were Elizabeth and, 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 and Zachariah. We know that, that, that he had lots of family members. We know a lot about that. These were people in Mary's life. All right? uh, Jesus, his, his brother's names are James, jo, Jude, Joseph, and Simeon. Those names are in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. We know, we know that, that these people were in his life. But what do we really know about Mary? Well, let's read a little bit here out of Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, now that would be an exciting day, right? Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. It doesn't say she was afraid. I think that's an important thought. Everybody else is afraid of him. She wasn't afraid. She was troubled at it and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. For the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. That's pretty good. In these five verses, the angel told Mary that she was favored uh, uh, twice. Favored. Now, by the way, the word favored here is the same in the Greek word that's mentioned about us when it tells us uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 that says we've been made accepted. In the beloved. So we also are favored. But he comes to her and tells her she's favored. It says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus, and he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give him give unto him the throne of his father David, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? That's a fascinating statement that she made. She said, How can this be? She did not say, this can't be. She said, how, how can this be? 
She didn't argue. She didn't doubt. She just wanted to know how it could come to pass. She had an open heart. She wanted to know how it could happen. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also this, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The, and the angel departed her. Handmaid means a female servant. She was saying, I'm your servant. I'm available for whatever you want. Let it be done unto me. How did Mary get to the place if she's some poor ignorant girl that she could say that to the angel? How did, I'm going to tell you something. God didn't just appear. That was her first thought about God that day. She had to be preparing some, for something in her life. We know that she gave birth to Jesus and she and Joseph. I mean, we, we know she did that. We know that Jesus was there. We know she was at the cross. We know she saw him after his resurrection. We know that Mary was there on the day of Pentecost, was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues with all those other people. She was there. That's what she did. All right. We know that Jesus entrusted Mary, his mom, to John to, to stay with him, John to be her son and, and her to be his mom. And so we know that, that when John moved to Ephesus later on in his life, because that's where he was at the end of his life, that Mary moved with him. And she actually lived the, the her remaining days with John in Ephesus. We also know, historians tell us, that it was in, in Ephesus that she met Luke. And she told Luke about the birth of Jesus. That's why Luke's gospel has more information about the birth of Jesus than all the rest of them. Okay, because John, because Luke was in Ephesus with, with, with the Apostle Paul. All right? So, we also know that, that some things about her that may or may not be in the Bible, but all we have Christians wrote about Mary from the first century. Historians wrote about her, told about her life, told about her upbringing. So we know, we know a lot about Mary from those records. So these Christian records show us that Mary's parents were older people and that they had no children, but they began to pray to God for a child. They prayed and they prayed. They made a vow that if the Lord would give them a child, that, he would, that they would dedicate the child to the Lord. So these old people, they're, they're, they're wanting a kid. So, so they record that when Mary was born, her parents presented her to the Lord and, and dedicated her for God's service. So from the time Mary was born, her parents began to groom her for a ministry to God, that she belonged to God, that something was going to happen in her life for God. Her parents told her that she was going to serve God. So she, she understood purpose, I'm, I'm sure, early in her life. Okay, they raised her in this home where, I mean, it was very important to her. We know from the records that Mary's father was in the full-time ministry. In fact, he was what was called a scroll scholar. His whole life was built around a commitment to the scriptures. Everything he did was about the word of God. Well, that meant that his family was involved in the service of the Lord. That meant that he was, he was a man dedicated to the word and he gave that to, to his family. History reveals that, that, his, that Mary's father and her family relocated to Nazareth at some point in her life. And while they were there, her father served as the overseer of the sacred scrolls in the synagogue that was not in Nazareth. There was no synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth was too small. He oversaw these in the synagogue in a town called Sephoris, which was four miles away. Okay, so that's, where, that's what he did. He, he, he did that, and, and he, he, he loved it. This city was a huge city that was very beautiful. I'll tell you more about it if I have time. Again, that shows his, he was all about the Scriptures. The Bible says she was betrothed to Joseph. It says when his mother, when, when, 
when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The word espoused, espoused or exposed, it means to be, to be betrothed or it's talking about they were engaged. When the Jewish people got engaged, they, they would get engaged and then they committed for a year of, to be pure. They committed to a year to be counseled. They, 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 they uh, took a year's time to make sure that they understood what they were getting into, even though the marriage was arranged for the most part. Okay, one year of training and preparation for marriage. At the end of that time, there was the ceremony that became husband and wife, and they were, full, they were joined together. Okay, so it's interesting because in this year of purification is when Mary turned up pregnant. Okay, so we understand that was probably a pretty tough time for everybody. So she was espoused to him. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So here's what we know about Mary. Her family... They, they they probably stayed in Bethlehem, or they could have lived in Sephora. She was probably more more raised in Sephora, because her dad worked in the synagogue and he kept record of of the scriptures. Okay, let's what about Joseph? Was he a poor carpenter? And that's what we most most people think when you think about poor Mary and Joseph on this trip from from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. You think those poor people? They were poor. They couldn't get food. They couldn't do anything. They were just poor people. Well, Joseph, the Bible says in in Matthew thirteen fifty five says that he was the carpenter's son. The carpenter's son. What does that mean? We see that. We hear that. We believe carpenters were poor. You know, they mostly fixed plows and more, well that type of thing. But it doesn't line up with the historical facts or the context of the of the verse the word for carpenter in the greek is the word tecton tecton we get the english word technology from tecton a, the word tecton describes a person that is highly advanced in whatever skill he possessed it depicts one who makes exquisite furniture jewelry mosaics stonework or even one who is a building supervisor this isn't talking about some person who is a carpenter doesn't really know what he's doing. The word carpenter is limiting in this translation of the word tecton. Here it says that as a tecton, Joseph was advanced in the technical skills he possessed. Okay, historians tell us he wasn't a simple carpenter that worked with wood. He was a highly paid professional. That might just have blown your whole Christmas. I'm sorry. <laughs> Although he lived in Nazareth, it's almost certain that he was a tecton in the city of Sephoris. That's where he worked. It was an affluent town. Joseph went there, and that's where he probably met Mary, probably met Mary's parents, and because uh, he was the, the scroll scholar at the library uh, the, there. Sephoris was built by Herod Antipas. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Antipas wanted to erect a great city that would become the Ornament of Galilee, is what he wanted to call it. He began, when he began to construction the city, I mean, he put lots of money to develop the city, and Sephoris became the, the banking center of the Middle East. There was tons of money in Sephoris. People flocked there and took up residence there. It was, it was on the cutting edge of all culture. Most of the people that worked in Sephoris lived in Nazareth. Because they got out of the hubbub of the city, it was like a sleeping community. Nazareth is where is where they went. That's where probably that's where what happened to Joseph. He worked in Sephora, lived in Nazareth. All right. Most people believe that he was. Most historians believe that he was a building supervisor, or a highly skilled craftsman with a lot of authority. Other other workers like Mary's father, uh, the sacred skill scholar there in Sephora, they lived in in that city, but but they. A lot of them lived outside in Nazareth. 
So Joseph lived in Nazareth, but he worked in Sepphoris. Jesus' ministry was, was actually very heavily influenced by this. If you just think about it, how did Jesus know that much scripture? I mean, I believe he, I mean, he went uh, to school just like the other Jewish boys, but I mean, he knew a lot about money. He knew a lot about a lot of things that you just couldn't know unless you were around those types of things. He was able to speak with knowledge and authority on lots of things. All right, so that's who he was. Joseph was this guy. This is what I think about Joseph. He couldn't just be a poor, dumb kid married to this poor, dumb girl. Because would God entrust someone with true riches to someone who had taken care of other riches? That's not what the scripture says. I mean, at some point, Mary's parents saw Joseph and thought, that'd be a good one. And they made the deal with his parents. And so they got this tecton and, and they got him to marry her. All right. Scripture says, if therefore you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you true riches? Joseph was a man who was faithful in unrighteous mammon. He was faithful with his money, faithful with his work. He was faithful with what he did. And that's why God would have him. God, Joseph was this guy who was so merciful. He, he was not a poor boy. He was a, he was a merciful, professional worker. The Bible says in Matthew 1.18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was a spouse of Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Again, they were engaged. It was during that time that Joseph, they, he, they remained sexually pure. At the end of the year, they were going to be joined. But then she shows up pregnant. That was probably not good news to Joseph when he first heard it. Wasn't good news to anyone, okay, because they were engaged. She, and everybody had to think at first she was the one who messed up. Well, Joseph is in this situation. It says in Matthew 1.19, then Joseph, her husband, I like this, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Just man means he was a righteous man. I mean, he discovered she was pregnant before they came together sexually. It could have hurt his honor, could have done lots of things to him, but he was not willing to make a public example of her. He knew that she wasn't a liar. He knew that she wasn't a person of, of ill repute. He knew there was something about her. And so he was merciful. He knew that something was going on. I mean, he had the legal right to publicly divorce her, to put her away. Could have, could have even had her stoned because she was pregnant. But he didn't do that. He decided to take a merciful approach. So he's a man, he's this guy who's a professional. He's got lots of mercy, but he also was attuned and obedient to the voice of God. In Matthew 1.20 it says, But while he thought of those things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee, marry thy wife, for, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now think about it. If you're Joseph, you have a dream and you hear that. I mean, at least Mary had an angel. They probably all thought she was crazy still. But now Joseph has a dream. But he was in tune. He knew the dream was from God. Have you ever had a dream you knew was from God? It's different than other dreams. It's a whole different dream. And there are lots of details in those dreams. But his heart was so spiritually attuned that he heard God speak. He knew what to do. Even though, even though he wasn't the biological father, he was going to be the earthly father, and he was willing to respond to what the Holy Spirit said. He could hear the voice of God. It says, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her till she gave birth to a son. 
He did exact, He heard it and he did it. This kid wasn't somebody that was some ignorant little poor carpenter boy. He was a professional man, full of mercy, full of character, because he loved God and he loved Mary. And then after Jesus was born, remember the angel comes to him in another dream and says, Arise, take the child, go to Egypt, because they're seeking his life. What do you do? He arose, took the child, because they were seeking his life. I mean, he did exactly what God told him to do. He, man, he proved himself. He proved himself faithful to God, faithful to Mary. See, these were great men and women that we're talking about. This isn't just a story of stupid people getting on a donkey and riding to Bethlehem. I mean, they, they, they might have taken a Camelac, however they got there. I don't know. They got there in the best transportation they could get there on. And they got there. So when, even, and then when he moved to Egypt, I mean, that was a very different culture. Joseph had never worked there. He had no contacts. He didn't have a permit to work. He left Egypt. It was a drastic move in his life, but he did exactly what God said without regard to what was ahead of him. He was going to obey God. Fortunately, these guys we're going to talk about later that we call the wise men showed up with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it wasn't a gold coin and a little bottle of frankincense, a little jar of myrrh. These were kings who gave a great gift to them, and that took care of them, I'm sure, for the rest of their time. But he obeyed God. He led his family spiritually. We know he took them to the, every year, took them into the city for the feast. You know, Jesus got left there one time for three days. One time we left Connor at the church, after church, and they called us and said, did you leave Connor here at the church? And I said, well, I think we got three more days. And, <laughs> but I had to go back and get him anyway. So we know that these people had integrity. We know that these people, they weren't poor and ignorant. This, this woman had a call of God on her life from the time she was born. And her parents apparently instilled the word into her. This Joseph was a successful businessman, not a poor beggar, a successful young man. And he, he, had, he was attuned to God. He obeyed God, even when the circumstances didn't, didn't, didn't look like they were going to work out for him. But they all did. Those are the kind of people that God likes. He likes everybody. But I'm telling you, he calls people and he prepares them for what he wants. And here's the fun part of this story that I like. It says in the Bible, And it came to pass of those days, this is back to Luke, that there, were, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I mean, every person, every person has to be in the right place. Every person has to be doing the right thing. There was this decree came. It was, it was a public decree. It was issued by the Roman Senate. I mean, when they issued a decree, this is talking about the government messing with private people's lives right here. Okay? And they sent this to all the world. This is all the Roman world. Everybody, every Roman citizen. They issued this decree. And they all should be taxed. The word tax doesn't mean tax. It really means to be enrolled. Or it's talking about a census. So there's this worldwide census of all the Roman uh, uh, world. And so they're, 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 they're going to count them. And that's because they're going to collect taxes later on. So was, they didn't do it very often. There are not many censuses you can find that part of history. But it says, right after that it says, And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Now that's kind of an uh, interesting thought. When it says all, the Greek word uh, is pantes, which means everyone, all, no one excluded. Everybody had to go back to their hometown 
where their ancestors were from to be counted. That doesn't seem like a very good way to take a census, but that's the way they took it. You had to go back and be counted there. And then it says, then it says, and everyone, that, that word is, is hekastos, which means everyone, all, no one excluded. Twice in the verse it says, everyone, no one excluded, went to his own city to be counted in the census. That means the entire Roman Empire was on the move. Think about that. Everybody was on the move. I mean, just all, just think of the hustle, the bustle, I mean, to accommodate this decree, everybody went everywhere. It was probably good for tourism, but not so good for if you owned a grocery store or you had to leave it for weeks to go do all of that. I mean, other people are missing money, their salaries, their economy was brought to a halt just so they could get this tax census taken. And they were packing their belongings, headed to where they were from. I mean, that's like everybody, everybody in the United States going back to grandma's house. Everybody. I mean, you had to close down your business. You had to go. This, this, this trip should have taken Joseph and Mary uh, four days, but it probably took them two weeks because she was pregnant, ready to deliver. They had to take it slower than everybody else. I mean, they were out there. They were they're, they're, they're traveling, all that stuff. I mean, but they had to. This is interesting. God had to get Mary to Bethlehem. Had to. Why? Because somebody said, who said? God said. The Bible says that, 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 that Micah predicted that the ruler would be born, the ruler of Israel would come forth out of Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. This part's fascinating to me. God put the world in movement to get Joseph and Mary where they were supposed to be. He moved the world to get this girl and this boy. She's probably 14 or 15. History tells us he might have been 30. He moved the world to get them to where they were supposed to be so that his word would come to pass. Here's the point. He will do the same thing for you. He will move the world to make his word come true in your life. If you'll just be faithful to him, hear him, and do what he says, he will move, he will move the Democrat Party for you. He will part the Red Sea for you. He will move whatever he has to move. He will talk to whoever he has to talk to. He will do anything necessary. He, God moved on Caesar Augustus to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem just so his word would come to pass. I think that's pretty cool. He will even inconvenience people, make them change their plans to get you to where you're supposed to be. We need to recognize tonight, Christmas was not an accident. It wasn't about dumb people lucking into it. It was about people who loved God, obeyed God, did what he said, and then God manifested his word even when the world didn't know, God manifested himself in that baby, in that manger on that night. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for Joseph. I thank you for Mary. I thank you, God, that these people were real people just like us. Real people who had the same opportunities we have. They had the opportunity to obey you. They had the opportunity to go where you told them to go and do what you told them to do. Father, I give you praise tonight. We thank you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.